The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have as a body of believers to gather together to worship you through the study of your word, for the freedom that we have in this nation to gather together to teach the truth of your word without any restrictions. And Father, now as we look into your word, we pray that you would give us the ability to concentrate and to focus, that under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit and his teaching ministry, we would be able to assimilate the things we learned, relate it, correlate it to other doctrines that we have learned, that it may spur us on in our spiritual life and spiritual growth, and that we might be challenged by the things that we study. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Galatians 4.21. Legalism is the enemy of grace, and all legalists are antagonistic to grace. You have basically two options in the Christian life. Option number one is legalism. Option number two is grace. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. You are either operating on the basis of grace or you are operating on the basis of legalism. That is Paul's message to the Galatians and Paul's message to us. We have to make a choice. Grace or legalism. Legalism is inherently destructive to Christianity and to capacity for life, to joy, and to happiness. Legalism erects a system of rules and regulations that, in effect, enslave the follower of legalism. It is the handmaiden of religion, which is the greatest weapon in Satan's arsenal. Remember, religion is man by man's efforts seeking God's approval. Emphasis is on ritual, religious activity, church attendance, prayer, discipleship groups, pep rallies for Jesus, any kind of uh, list of rules and regulations that must be followed that are not mandates specified in the Word of God. In contrast to that, grace is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Biblical Christianity means that God did all the work and we simply accept it. We receive it on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and the spiritual life is the same thing. This is where people continually fall apart, is in their misunderstanding of the nature of the spiritual life. And this is why Galatians is so important, why it has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, even by those who had no clue as to what that really meant. As they said that, they in turn reimposed some system of legalism on, Christ, on Christianity. But Paul says in Galatians 3.3, 3, Having begun by means of the Spirit, are you being matured by the flesh? And that again brings into the focus the fact that it is one of two options. Grace, legalism, sin nature, or the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.5, Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. In other words, there are only two options, flesh or spirit, law or grace. There is no middle ground. It has become popular recently to teach, even in doctrinal circles and those circles which espouse a grace gospel, that you can be both spiritual and carnal at the same time. This, goes, this is just antithetical to everything that we see in Galatians because Paul continuously emphasizes this dichotomy. It's one or the other. It's not both. You can't get into sort of this already not yet kind of view this, uh, which buys into this dialectic that you can be partly one and partly the other as you're growing along. The issue here that Paul makes clear is faith alone. Now let's review what, how Paul has structured his argument in the fourth chapter. 
so that we can understand why he does what he does when we come to verse 21. In the first 11 verses, Paul's exhortation is that we are to live as heirs of God rather than as slaves to the elemental laws of religion, whether it's Judaism or in the case of the Galatians, their previous heathenism. Both return us to slavery. We're to live as heirs of God, and we looked at the doctrine of inheritance. That inheritance in the Scriptures emphasizes there are two categories of inheritance. Inheritance emphasizes possession. There are those who are heirs of salvation. They possess eternal life. Then there are those believers, that subset of those who are heirs of eternal life, heirs of salvation, who are heirs of the kingdom. These are believers who have successfully advanced to spiritual maturity, are executing the Christian way of life and God's plan in their life, and they, have, uh, they will have eternal rewards when they arrive in heaven, and they will rule and reign with Jesus Christ, and they are called joint heirs with Christ. So that is our challenge as believers. Are, are we going to be among those who simply have eternal life and end up in heaven but are not possessors of the kingdom? Or are we going to advance to spiritual maturity and be uh, successful in the spiritual life, witnesses in the uh, appeal trial of Satan against Satan and thereby become joint heirs with Christ? That's the challenge of the first 11 verses. The first two verses is the analogy of adoption. This is critical to understanding Paul's whole argument is the Roman concept of adoption. A child, a son, a male child, was up until he was an, uh, adopted, which occurred at age 14, was a child, a techno. Technos. Technon. This emphasizes our experiential position in Christ. But at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we are adopted into the family, and adoption means that we are, from the point of our regeneration, we are viewed as huios. H-U-I-O-S. Huios, which is an adult son with all the rights and privileges thereto. Paul is saying that we need to live as adult sons in light of all that we have in our position in Jesus Christ, all of the vast spiritual assets that God has provided for us. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, My God shall supply all your needs through His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Those are our assets, the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It is a bank account that is has infinite assets. And we are to live in light of that. And yet most believers, instead of living as if they are heirs of the king, are living as if they are street bums and have lost everything. They're living under the slavery of legalism instead of as adult children of the Lord God who owns everything. And this is going to be the issue. Are you going to live as a slave or are you going to live as a son? This is your choice. And this is what he's driving home to the Galatian believers. He speaks of the and emphasizes the reality of adoption in the first 11 verses. And then starting in verse 12, he shifts his tone a little bit to a more personal exhortation. And he challenged the Galatians and us to live as he lives, that is, in light of our new position as heirs of God and as adult sons. And he concludes this, these uh, verses in verse 19 and 20 by stating the goal of the spiritual life, which is the formation of Christ's character in us. That is when we become a joint heir with Christ, is when Christ's character is formed in us, and that will be defined more fully as the fruit of the Spirit when we come to Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 and following. Now we come to the final coup de grace in his argument in these two middle chapters, of chapters 3 and chapter 4. The Galatians have been influenced by Judaizers. What happened? 
Well, as Paul came into Galatia, to the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, he taught the gospel that if you want to be saved, it is simply by faith alone in Christ alone. That's all that's required. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the Galatian believers were just overjoyed to hear this. They were very receptive to the gospel. They were on on positive signals. They had been positive at God consciousness. And they were so excited to hear that they they didn't have to get involved in all this mysticism, the mystery religions of Greece that dominated that area. They didn't have to be involved in all of that. All they had to do was believe in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, and that was it. And they had eternal salvation. Well, Paul left, continued on his missionary journey, and eventually returned back to Antioch, and right behind him came a group of Jews, and we call them Judaizers, because these teachers came along and said, well, you, you want eternal life. Well, Paul only gave you half of the story. Now, we're going to give you the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is that you have to add something to faith. Faith alone in Christ is great, but you have to add the Mosaic Law, specifically circumcision. And these Judaizers were emphasizing their natural relationship to Abraham. We see the same kind of thing evident in the Pharisees' attitude that as long as you were a physical descendant of Abraham, who was a father of the Jewish race, If you were a genetic descendant of Abraham, a Jew, then you were in. And they did not understand that the issues with Abraham had nothing to do with the physical descent, but with spiritual descent. For example, Abraham had two sons, as we will see. Ishmael was the older, and Isaac was the younger. Ishmael was the son of the Egyptian slave Hagar, and Isaac was the child of promise. Isaac, the line goes, and the promise descended through Isaac because Isaac not only had a miraculous supernatural uh, physical birth, but he had a supernatural uh, spiritual birth. He was born again. Ishmael was not regenerate. The line went from Isaac to his son Jacob. Jacob had an older brother, Esau. Esau was not a believer. Jacob was a believer, so he has spiritual birth. And then the line went down through Jacob's 12 sons, and you see the emphasis is all the way on spiritual birth. That is the line of Israel. It is not physical birth. It is founded upon physical birth and regeneration. That's what made them true Israel. That's what set them apart. But the Judaizers and the legalists, the Pharisees, just emphasized the physical relationship to Abraham. So Paul is going to say, okay, you're impressed with Abraham. You're impressed with the circumcision of Abraham. And you want to make that the issue in the spiritual life. Well, legalism is just one great distraction to spirituality. So what I'm going to do is show you what the issues are. We're just going to go back to Abraham and look at what happened in Abraham's life. And from Abraham's life... We're going to draw some principles to emphasize what the real issues are, and then you can make an informed choice. Remember, the choice is grace or legalism. There is no middle ground. So let's begin with our exegesis. We stopped last time at verse 19, so let's begin with verse 20. Paul says, expressing his desire to be with the Galatians, he says, but I could wish to be present with you. Uh, to be present with you now, and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. He starts off, and we see, to find the verb translated wish is the uh, imperfect active indicative of the Greek word thelo, which is an expression of volition, T-H-E-L-O. It means to want, to wish, to will. So this expresses Paul's deep desire to be face-to-face with the Galatian believers. It's an imperfect tense, which means continuous action in the past. So Paul has continually wanted to be with them. As he keeps hearing about the problems there, he keeps saying, I wish I could go there. I wish I could go straighten out this mess. They are being destroyed spiritually by these legalists. 
and I want to be with them. So the imperfect tense emphasizes Paul's continuous desire to be with them and to keep them from falling into this trap of legalism. It says, I could wish to be present with you. And here we have a present active infinitive of the verb par ami. P-A-R-E-I-M-I. It's a compound. It's para plus the verb ami, and it means simply to be present, to be with you. And it exp- it's an infinitive, present active infinitive that expresses Paul's purpose, the purpose of his, of his wish, of his desire. He wanted to be with the Galatians. He wanted to straighten them out. And it is a, the present tense here is a dramatic present which me- emphasizes the uh, drama of the situation and that he wanted to have a dramatic confrontation with the Galatians. Then it says, we have the translation, with you, which literally in the Greek is pros, plus the accusative of the second person plural pronoun, which means face to face with you. He does not really want to write this letter. He wants to have a face to face encounter with them. He wants to get right there and straighten them out and um, really lay into it. But if he had done that, instead of writing the letter, then we would have been missing this particular epistle and would not have this excellent doctrinal dissertation on the distinction between grace and legalism. So it was God's will for Paul not to go to them face to face, but to write them a letter. It says, I wish I could be present with you now and to change my tone. His tone is very harsh. I think the tone of Galatians lets us know that sometimes a pastor has to really ream out his congregation because they get caught up in false doctrine, and that is not antithetical to the concept of being a pastor. Now, that we have a lot of folk, folk concepts in American evangelicalism, a lot of folk ideas about what pastors are like, that they're, they're very kind and they're very wonderful and they just smile and they're very benign, and, and uh, that has nothing to do with the biblical concept of a pastor who is a shepherd. And we have to remember what a shepherd does. A shepherd leads and directs the sheep. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever thought about it very much, the fact that God compares you to a sheep. But if you lack humility, you will be offended at that because there is no animal in God's creation that is as defenseless and that is as stupid and that is as easily led astray as a sheep. And so God compares all believers to sheep and their need for a shepherd. And the role of a shepherd is to take the sheep to good pasture where they can eat good grass to keep them away from the weeds, to keep them away from any, any um, grass that might be poisonous. And they're, they're, uh, by the shepherd has a, has a staff with a crook on the end, and if that sheep gets off into some area where there's some, uh, some grass that's going to be harmful to them or some growth that's going to be harmful, he reaches out and he grabs him and pulls him back in line and pokes and prods him and everything else in order to keep him from eating the bad grass and getting something that's going to make him sick. And that's the corrective aspect. Paul would rather be uh, there with them face-to-face, encouraging them and patting them on the back. Instead, he has to correct them and rebuke them and paddle them on the butt. And see, that's essential at times. Even you parents need to do that with your children if you... If you spare the rod, you will spoil the child, and that's a biblical principle, and it's important to exercise uh, corporal punishment on children in order to teach them authority orientation so that when they become adults, they do not succumb to outlandish or excessive arrogance and that they understand the principles of authority so that they can be a success in any area of life in in which they choose to uh, get involved. Now, Paul says, I wish to be present with you now and to change my tone. See, Paul doesn't like being a hard case. Paul doesn't like having to ream them out and straighten them out because they've gotten into all of this legalistic religion. Paul would rather be there moving them forward in the spiritual life rather than correcting them. But he is very confused about why they have gotten so... Uh, distracted by this, and and I can understand that. Over the years, I have seen people who have um, uh, 
gotten caught up in all kinds of uh, distractions to the spiritual life, all kinds of false concepts and doctrines. I've seen guys that I went to seminary with who got away from doctrine and got into experience and got into the charismatic movement and got into healing and signs and wonders. And I just can't understand how those men, with the background they had, with the teaching they had, how in the world they could get so distracted and caught up in that. But it's a sin nature. And people are sinners. And because of that, we're going to follow certain trends of our sin nature, and you need to learn what your trend is, and you need to thereby be warned where, where you are susceptible. You're either going to have a trend towards legalism and asceticism, which means that anytime somebody comes along with some idea that uh, sounds good and sounds like it's going to make you a little holier or a little closer to God, then you're going to get caught up with it before you stop and think, is this really biblical? On the other hand, there are those who have the trend towards licentiousness and lawlessness called antinomianism. And anytime something fun or pleasurable comes along, they have a tendency to get caught up in that before they ask, well, wait a minute, is this really what I should be involved in as a believer? Now, frankly, I would rather have a church of antinomians than a church of legalists. Because legalists don't understand grace. Never will understand grace. And you always have a problem with with them because they want to constantly impose their ideas on everybody else. Whereas antinomians could care less. They understand grace because they know that there's nothing they can do to ever please God. And so they just, they count too much on grace. And I think the Lord felt that way because when he was had his ministry three years on the earth, he, he was constantly headbutting with the Pharisees, the legalistic religious crowd. And uh, when he wanted to have a good time and when he wanted to relax, he was always hanging out with the uh, tax collectors and the uh, uh, prostitutes and all the uh, people. That doesn't mean he affirmed their lifestyle, but what it meant was that they understood they needed grace and they were rejected by the religious crowd, and they were relaxed. And they knew that they could uh, easily sit down and talk with the Lord, and they had parties and banquets all the time, so much so that when uh, uh, the Pharisees wanted to uh, run down the Lord and assassinate his character, they said he was a, a drunkard and a glutton, because he was always going to these parties and banquets with the tax collectors and prostitutes and just relaxing and enjoying himself. So I think the Lord kind of had a, a, an attitude towards the religious crowd, not unlike, not unlike mine. So, but Paul is straightening them out to, so they don't, these Galatian believers don't get into a bunch of legalism. And he brings this point home in verse 21. He says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, okay, there are those of you who want to adopt this. In fact, you've already started buying into this idea that you can please God by following the mandates of the Mosaic Law. You have gone out and you're uh, getting circumcised and you're trying to memorize all of the mandates in the Mosaic Law and you're going to put this into practice so that somehow that will ad- thinking that that will advance you spiritually. He says, now, tell me this. Have you really listened to the law? He starts off, let's exegete the passage briefly. He starts off, he says, tell me. This is a present active imperative, but it's really a rhetorical statement. Remember, he's writing. He doesn't expect a verbal response. He is, he's using this as an idiom to get them to focus their thinking on the issues. See, this is a problem. We often see Christians see good ideas. Somebody comes along and says there's a problem. We have one, one example today is, is the family. There's a breakdown in the family. There's a breakdown in marriage. The divorce rate is, is out of control. The uh, number of children who are going into rebellion and drugs and everything else and, and revolting against whatever uh, views the, the parents have is, is high. And You've got all kinds of things going on. So you, you have husbands who are caught up in their careers and women caught, wives caught up in their careers and family life is breaking down. So we have a problem. Everybody can sit down and say there's a problem. The issue is, what's the solution? So somebody comes along and says, we have to start getting these men focused, so let's start having these big rallies and get all the Christian men out here, and we're going to have 
these great uh, uh, get-togethers here and get everybody pumped up to do the right thing as men. Well, they, in some ways they're doing some good things and they have some good things to say, but the whole framework's off because that's not the solution the Bible has. And they haven't thought things through. And so everybody just gets caught up in whatever comes along because it looks good and it sounds good on the surface without really thinking through the underlying issues. And this is the same thing that happens in Galatia. It happens all the time. It happens from generation to generation. I've been around long enough in professional ministry to have seen all kinds of trends sweep through the church. And every four or five years, it's a new one. And everybody goes, oh, isn't that great? Until a few years goes by and somebody with a little doctrinal sense comes along and critiques it and shows why it's not biblical. But people get caught up in it without thinking. So Paul wants the Galatians to start thinking about this. And he says, you who want to be under the law, you think this is a good idea. You, they've pointed out a solution probably. They've come along and they said, look at this pagan society you live in. There's just a lot of rampant immorality here. People going down to the, to the temples and visiting the temple prostitutes and trying to uh, have an, a religious experience down there and, and all of these other things that are going on. We need to make sure we're taking a stand for Christ. So we need to make sure that there is a real difference in our lifestyle and the lifestyle of the average uh, Greek heathen that's walking around out there who's not a believer. So let's, uh, let's emphasize the Mosaic Law because then everybody's going to know that we're moral. Doesn't that sound good? They've pointed out a problem and they're going to have a great solution. But Paul says, let's think this thing through all the way. Do you not listen to the law? And here he uses the verb akuo. And we have seen this in our study of James on Wednesday night. Akuo does not mean simply to uh, listen. A-K-O-U-O. Now this is in the present active indicative. And in the Greek, the word to hear implies hearing with understanding and application. It's not just the concept of having your your eardrums vibrated by sound. It's the idea of listening with a positive response, understanding the concepts, thinking it through. It includes the idea of comprehension. Now, Paul is writing, so when he says, Here, have you, have you, um, uh, do you not listen to the law, and the law is written, he's not talking about truly hearing with the ear. This is, again, an idiom for paying attention to what they are saying, to thinking it through in detail. The Judaizers had been teaching the law to them and saying that you have to add works. What you do is going to impress God. So that's their thesis. Works, human works impress God and make you spiritual. Paul says, have you really thought this through? Think about this a little bit. Do you really think that you can do something that's going to impress God? And this is why he makes this asked the rhetorical question back in Galatians 3.3, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now being matured by means of the flesh? Do you really think that works which come from the law impress God? Let's think about this a little bit and let's unpack these assumptions and go back in the Bible. You who are so impressed with Abraham and Abraham's circumcision, let's just take some time to go back and find out what the implications of the law really is and let's look at Abraham and see what we can learn from that. So before we move on to 22, if we were to retranslate verse 21 to give it a more complete translation, Paul says, you all tell me, because it's in the plural, you all tell me, those of you who have taken the responsibility to place yourself under bondage to the law, have you truly listened and understood the implication of legalism? Have you really paid attention to this? Have you thought it through? So he goes back to the historical incident of Abraham 
and his two sons. Judaizers have talked about Abraham and emphasized Abraham and emphasized the physical relationship to Abraham. And that's why they have to be circumcised and become under the law, even though they weren't born physically, by becoming a proselyte in some way, they are going to be related to Abraham. So Paul says, For it is written in the Scriptures, it has been written with the results that it continues. It's a perfect tense, emphasizing the present reality of a past act. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. Now, I'm going to stop there because we won't get any further than that this morning. Allegorically speaking, in verse 24, what does that mean? Well, the modern concept of an allegory is it is a fictitious narrative. That means it's a made-up story, to put it in the coin A. It's a fictitious narrative, and the events did not actually take place and are not historical. This narrative is designed simply to illustrate a deeper meaning than the one that's expressed by the words. Now, what happened in church history, in the early church, the dominant worldview, Weltanschauung, of the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, was Neoplatonism. Now, Plato had the idea that what is actual in this world is not as real and not as significant as what exists in the ideal world. So he posited two, two levels of reality, a physical level and a spiritual level. Well, what happened in the church, the church at any given time in church history always imitates the world. It's tragic, it's sad, but it's true. Because the worldview of our culture is what we're infected with when we become saved. And unless we renovate our thinking to a very deep level, we're still going to think like the pagan down the street. We may change the content of our thinking somewhat, but unfortunately most people throughout church history never change how they think. Because that's very difficult. It gets very abstract, and it's hard enough to to think about what we're thinking without thinking about thinking itself. So they make this distinction between the spiritual and the physical. And you you get a great scholar by the name of Origen that came along, and Origen completely transformed the practice of interpretation up to that point. Up to that point, hermeneutics was a literal grammatical principle based on historical principles that a Bible, the Bible must be interpreted in the time in which it was written and that you had to understand the literal grammar and syntax, lexicology, word studies, all of that had to be understood and there was just this literal meaning of the text. But he says, no, no. There is a physical meaning and that didn't even necessarily take place. What re- what's really important is this upper story meaning the spiritual level. So what we have to do is get behind the text to that spiritual level, and the physical may or may not have happened, and and it doesn't really matter. It's, It's historical veracity is irrelevant. What's important is the spiritual meaning. Well, as soon as you do that, you're in the realm of real relativism as far as interpretation is concerned, because anybody can go into the text and say, well, I think it means this. And I think it means that. I'll never forget the time. It was about the last time I decided it was a good idea to have these home Bible classes where people sit around and they take out their Bible and you try to get people into the Scriptures to read it for themselves and think a little bit. And you go around the room and you have somebody read the passage. Okay, well, what does that say? And they all share their ignorance. And I remember one lady sitting there and we were reading a psalm. And it, most people don't realize that, that what appears in the English text is a little superscript at the beginning. 
that this psalm was written to the chief musician, musician when, when uh, David escaped from the hands of the Philistines or whatever the situation was. That's part of the Scripture. That's not something that the editor of the Bible put in there just to give you some insight. That's part of the inspired Word of God, and in the Hebrew, that's verse 1. In the English, they take it out, and that's why it's always difficult when you're doing studies in the Hebrew in the Psalms is because the verse numbers don't correlate between the English and Hebrew because the, we, we've taken that first verse out and made it a superscript. But this was a particular psalm that had to do with a particular historical incident in the life of David. And this woman just started, well, I think it means, and she just started talking about what this psalm meant. And if she had just read that superscript, she would have realized it didn't have anything at all to do with what she thought it did because she had just completely divorced it from its historical context and was just operating on pure subjectivity. And that is what allegory is. It's when you just, the historical realities are irrelevant. We'll just see what we think it means. And the emphasis is on that upper-level spiritual meaning. Well, that's not how the Greeks understood allegory. That's how moderns understand allegory. According to the ancient Greeks, allegory was an extended metaphor or a hypocatastasis. Now, I'll spell that for you. Hypocatastasis. Now, there are three types of analogies. There's simile, which is a clearly stated analogy. There is a metaphor, which is an, an, an implied, and a, a hypocatastasis is also implied, but it's never stated. The comparison is never stated. With a metaphor, it's implied and stated. So, for the Greeks, an allegory was a combination of a metaphor and a hypocatastasis where the comparison is either implied and stated or simply implied. But for them, an allegory was based on true historical events. It wasn't something that was just made up, some fictional narrative. An allegory, it could be, but an allegory often was, was based on true historical events which illustrated a principle. So when we understand how Paul is using the word allegory in verse 24, he is using it as using historical events which actually took place and he is using those events to illustrate a further doctrinal truth without diminishing or detracting from the original historical events. And that's how he is going to use the incident in Abraham. This is called theological deduction. He's going to go back to these incidents in Scripture and show us how to do honest theological deductive reasoning from the text. So in order to do that, and because I find that most modern Christians are so ignorant, woefully ignorant of the Old Testament, we need to take some time to go back into the Old Testament and examine this. But let's look at verse 22 and 23 for a summation so we'll know what we're looking for when we get back into Genesis. Verse 22, For it is written, perfect tense, perfect passive, Indicative, which means that the emphasis is on the present reality of a past act. It stands written in the Scriptures with the result that it continues to be written forever. The passive voice is used to indicate that we receive revelation. It's not a middle voice. It's not an active voice. God is the one who reveals. Man receives, receives it. God ultimately is the one who makes sure that Scripture is written. Man does not. Even though men are involved, they are simply the instruments. So get the giving of Scripture is again an illustration of God's grace and provision for mankind. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now there's going to be we're going to see that there's a big difference between the two sons. But before we get started, we have to realize that, that a lot is going to be made of the names in this, these incidents. Abraham was originally named Avram. And that is spelled in the Hebrew, it looks like this. It 
And the, the B there is a soft B and, and translated almost like a V. And that means it's a compound word. The first word, A-B, means father. It's the Hebrew word for father. The second, Ram, which comes from the a verb room, means exalted. So the literal meaning of Avram is exalted father. Now, you would think that's a funny name to give a child. Why would you look at your child when he's born and say, he's an exalted father? I mean, he hasn't even hit puberty yet, much less had children. Well, that's because the name is not relating to Abraham. The name related to his own father, Terah, and tells us that Abraham, Avram, was born into nobility. He was born into an aristocratic family during the third dynasty of Ur, approximately 2100 B.C. And his name simply meant exalted with respect to his father, telling us that he is from this distinguished and aristocratic lineage. Now, in the course of the narrative that we're going to look at in Genesis uh, 16 and 17, God is going to change his name from Avram to Avraham. Now, this is what I, I, I get into this. I think this is fun to look at these names and to get into Hebrew etymology and to discover that these names are not always what, they're, what people think they are. The scriptures tell us that Abraham means the father of a multitude. Well, he's not there yet either. Not father of a multitude. And that's really a popular etymology. Most of the names in Scripture, when it says so-and-so was named such-and-such because of this, it's a popular etymology. If you break the word down, the word doesn't really mean that. But it's a play on words. The Scriptures, especially the Hebrew, is full of paranomasias. Now, a paranomasia is a sophisticated way of talking about a pun. And these aren't funny puns. These are word plays, and they are designed to make things stick in people's minds so that they remember them. They are mnemonic devices. And so the word Abraham, which Avraham, uh, does not literally mean father of many nations, but it sounds like Avhamon, which does mean father of a multitude. And so the emphasis was on... God's future fulfillment of the promise that Abraham would be the father of a multitude. Now, in this same context, we have the name change for Sarai. Now, in the ancient world, whenever somebody's name was changed, that indicated a change in that person's status or circumstances. And when someone, especially when God is bestowing a new name, that's an expression of suzerainty or lordship. Sometimes a king, once you became his subject, he would give that person a new name. So it's an expression of their authority, their lordship or suzerainty over someone. And in this, it's a reminder that God is still in control of Abraham's life and destiny. Jesus Christ still controls history, and God will fulfill his promise to Abraham. But at the beginning of our story, he is still called Avram, and Sarai, Sarah is still called Sarai. Now, this is, again, another interesting, interesting name. When this word, Sarai, was translated into the, the Greek in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translator doubled this letter here, which is a resh. That's the letter R. And he translated it like this. Now, that's a big difference. The root for Sarai is probably just an antiquated form of the noun of the word princess, which would indicate her nobility. Remember, she is Abraham's half-sister, so they're both aristocrats. And she was called princess, and her name was just modernized from Sarai to Sarah, and it still meant princess. However, uh, Sarai, which remember this is from the Septuagint, the LXX, which was the translation the Jews made of the Hebrew Old Testament about the second to 3rd century B.C. from, from Hebrew to Greek because many Jews in, in the um, diaspora had lost the ability to read Hebrew. 
They're not inspired, and there were a lot of mistakes. But, but the root meaning of, of, of this word, Sarai, with a double R, the root for that would mean argumentative or contentious. And there are many people who think that this means that, that uh, her, her name would indicate her character at the beginning and that she was a very uh, contentious, argumentative woman and that she was really a, because she is aristocrat, that she was just a royal pain in the butt. But I suggest to you that how many of you, looking at that beautiful child of yours when they're just a little baby and they're just sitting there in your arms and, and they just look so nice and sweet and angelic, sit there and say, you're just going to be a royal pain in the butt, so that's what I'm going to name you. That doesn't happen. So I don't think that um, on the basis of, of this conversion and on the basis of the, the, the roots of Sarai, that anybody in human nature is going to look at their wonderful child and call them a contentious woman, or worse, and you can translate that into the koine if you'd like. So there's going to be a shift in this, in this narrative of names because there's going to be an emphasis on God's fulfillment of His promise. Now, the text says, verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman, who is Ishmael, the bondwoman is Hagar, and the, her son is Ishmael. The father is Avram. The son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. That means the human solution to man's problems screwed everything up. And this is always the principle. When man, by man's efforts, tries to solve his own problems apart from God, he is always going to mess things up and create even more problems. Problems, and the problem here, has continued for, for thousands of years. This is the root of the whole Arab Israeli conflict. If you want to know how the conflict starts between the Arabs and the Jews, it starts right here with this conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. Now, we have to remember the principle that man can do nothing for his salvation or his spirituality. Faith is the works and puts all the emphasis on the object, which is Jesus Christ. Legalism puts the emphasis on man's efforts. And that's what we're going to have here. Ishmael is Abram's solution to the problem of infertility. Isaac is God's gracious, complete provision to the solution of infertility. Ishmael is man getting involved in producing the solution. Isaac Man's involved at a physical level, but it's totally a supernatural birth because by the time Isaac is born, Abram is way too old, too advanced in years to be a natural father, and so is Sarah. So one is the born, born the son of the bondwoman, the other the son of the free woman. So let's get the background and turn in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. And let's have a little fun looking at the Old Testament text. Now the problem is that Sarai is barren. This is stated very clearly earlier in the text back in verse 30 of chapter 11. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is the first time the issue of barrenness is spoken of in the Scripture. Now, we always have to have a little correction here because every now and then you run into some woman who trying, is trying desperately to have children. I don't know if that's the case of anyone here, and I'm not being uncompassionate, but I have run into women who, because they're going through that, they try to get into the Bible to find out what the Bible has to say about having children and being barren and what the terrible condition is and that it must be God's discipline on them. And that's not true at all. The Bible only speaks of six women that are barren. And in each case, God is making a theological point 
not only about his own grace provision, but about the nature of salvation. Who are these six women? Well, the first three are Sarai, Rebekah, and Rachel. Now, who are they married to? They're married to the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is making a point in each one that it is the child of promise is going to be the result of his work and not man's work. Because God is trying to make the point that when there is a dead womb, that God is the one who brings life where there is death. And the spiritual principle of that is that God is the one who gives spiritual life where there is spiritual death. Now, these are the first three. The next two come up during the period of the judges. And this is the mother of Samson and Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel. And they live at just about the same time. And it's very interesting, we don't have time to go into it here, the contrast between Samson and Samuel in the plan of God. But both of them speak of God's unique provision, His grace provision of life where there is death. Now, the next person is a New Testament woman, Elizabeth. She's barren and her child is going to be John the Baptist. Now, these six women, notice the number of man, finiteness, six women are barren, are all types. The empty womb. They are all types of who? Who do you think they're types of? They're types of Mary, who is the virgin, who conceives and gives birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate solution to death is is Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible emphasizes barrenness. Now, the flip side to, to barrenness is you always get people who come along and start putting an amazing emphasis on human fertility as if that has something to do with the spiritual life and spiritual obedience. And you come up with folks who, and you run into this. I remember seeing this when I was in seminary. There was always a certain group of people who thought that they were uh, being very spiritual because they were having as many children as possible. These tended to be the guys who also dropped out of seminary because they had to support their families. And remember, the Bible says that if you can't support your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. You're worse than an infidel. And the point in the Bible is not go out and have all the children you can have and be more spiritual and be more consistent with the plan of God. That is not the issue. The issue is always in the Bible is always responsibility. Now, for some people, that means that, that it's between them and the Lord that they're going to exercise their responsibility and have a vast array of children, and that's wonderful. Others are going to say, I'm not even going to get married. I'm going to be celibate because I will have fewer and fewer distractions in life. I won't have a wife or a husband, and I won't have children, and I can serve the Lord in a much greater capacity. And that's a decision between them and the Lord, and Paul makes that clear that you're no more or less spiritual because you're celibate. And then there are those who are going to get married and say, I'm not going to have any children because my wife and I can serve the Lord on the mission field or here at home without the distraction of children or for whatever reason, they're going to make that choice and it's between them and the Lord. It has nothing to do with spirituality. And then there's a group that say, well, I'm just going to have one or two kids. This is all the financial resources God's given me. I'm going to make a wise decision and do the best with what God's given me and I'm going to advance there. But whatever it is, the issue in the Bible is never on fertility as an issue in the spiritual life And it wasn't on barrenness as an issue in the spiritual life, with one exception. And that was in Israel under the Mosaic Law. Because God, the Mosaic Law is very physically oriented. The the sacrifices are all teaching aids, visual aids. God said, if you are obedient to me, I'm going to make you prosperous. Point. You want to know how obedient you really are, go look at the gross national product. If it's going up, the nation is being blessed. And you're doing, you're obedient. If it's going down, you are not being blessed and you are disobedient. Consequently, if the women are barren and not having children, that's divine discipline and you're not being spiritual. All the factors were very physical, very visual, very easy to track their spirituality by gross national product, by barrenness, by fertility, all these things. But that was for Israel. That wasn't for anybody else and cannot be applied to anybody else unless you want to, of course, 
go back under the Mosaic law, which is what Paul is saying we're not supposed to do. So back to verse 16 of Genesis, where we have gotten sidetracked by the issue of barrenness and fertility. Sarai is barren, has no children, and she has an Egyptian maid whose name is Hagar. Now, this is how our bad decisions come back to haunt us. A few chapters earlier, Avram and Sarai decide to head south to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. Now, they're in carnality at this point, not trusting God. They're looking to another human solution. When they get down there, Avram decides to pass Sarai off as his sister. Now, the Pharaoh looks at her and says, she must have been a gorgeous woman, because even at the age of 90, Abimelech, the, a, a Philistine king, is going to take her into his harem. So she just must have been a knockout. And remember, they live to be 130, 140 years old, so their 80 and 90 isn't our 80 and 90. It's more comparable to our 50, middle-aged 50 to 60 range. So they, earlier, though, when uh, Avram and Sarai in their 60s to 70s, they head south to Egypt, and they go through that little episode. And while they're down there, the Pharaoh, as part of the, their parting gifts, according to Hebrew le- legend, gave them a slave, present of a slave woman, Hagar. So in the midst of their carnality, they picked up a little extra baggage. And this extra baggage is going to be the source of much contention. So carnality piles upon carnality and problems. Human viewpoint solutions manufacture more and more problems. They do not provide solutions. So she picks up this uh, Egyptian slave and... She's convinced now that she can't have children in time. Her biological clock has not only kept on ticking, it stopped. And she knows there's no way she's going to have children. And we've got it. God's promised us descendants. God's promised us a whole nation. We better do something to solve the problem. So the emphasis here is on human viewpoint solutions to man's problems. And her solution is, Avram, why don't you go take Hagar as your wife, and have children through her, and then God's promise will be fulfilled. See, they're helping God. That's the problem with legalism, is we, they always want to help God instead of God alone. So go in, and I, she says, I shall obtain children through her. And Avram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, to us, this is almost a barbaric practice. What, what, what could be going on here? And yet it was a very legitimate widely practiced social custom of the day. I'm reading from the Law Code of Hammurabi from the ancient Near Eastern text. Uh, Law number 146 says, when a senior, that is a a landowner, married a herodule. Now, I had to look that word up. That is a temple priestess. And she gave a female slave to her husband, and she, that is the female slave, has then borne children, If later that female slave has claimed equality with her mistress because she bore children, her mistress may not sell her. She may mark her with the slave mark and count her among the slaves. So this is part of ancient Near Eastern custom from one culture to another that the slave of the wife could substitute the slave and have children and raise them up as her own. So Sarai is saying, okay, we have a socially acceptable custom here and we'll adopt that as God's solution to the problem. But God does not accept socially accepted custom as the divine solution for human problems. And see, that's what happens. Everybody looks around and says, well, everybody else is doing it. You know, promise keepers is wonderful. Look at all the wonderful men that are associated with it. And look at the great results. After all, we're Americans. Theology doesn't matter. It's all pragmatics. It's having an effect on people. It's changing their lives, so it must be good. Well, that's one of Satan's greatest lies is because it works, it's right. That's not true at all. That is, you follow down that road, you'll be right in the path of legalism. So they're offering a human solution to the problem. And Hagar, Hagar conceives, and now there's a problem in the household. Hagar is exercising a little arrogance over the other woman in the house. And she is looking askance at Sarai because she's bought into this same concept that, that you're just not quite the woman you ought to be if you haven't had children. And see, there are a lot of women who buy into that, and that is a lie. That a woman's significance is not in her children. 
or the ability to have children. And there's nothing that can be more devastating to a woman who cannot have children than that concept because often they think that their, their value and their significance is caught up in having children. And so what started off as, a, as what Sarah thought was a really good plan turned sour. And when she would have all of her friends over, uh, she would say, go in and say a few kind words to Hagar. She's in there now in her eighth month, and she's really having a hard time. And they would go in there, and Hagar would just kind of lift her eyebrow and, and make a few snide remarks about uh, Sarai and how she just couldn't have children, but now I'm going to have the heir, so you know, you all really need to pay attention to me. She's not all she's cracked up to be because if she was, she'd have children because obviously there must be something spiritually wrong with her if she's not having children. So the Lord's blessed me and uh, the uh, uh, legends of the Jews indicate that, that Hagar's conception occurred on the first night. So Hagar is saying, it only took one shot, folks, and I got pregnant, so I must be a lot more spiritual and a lot more in God's favor than Sarah. So Sarah is despised in her sight, and now she reacts, and she wants Abram, Avram, to send her, send Hagar out of the house. So, uh, and Sarai begins to react to, to Hagar, and she restores her to a position of a slave and starts treating her very, very harshly and abusing her. So Hagar decides that uh, running away is the better part of valor. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord, this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, found her by a spring of water. Notice the motif of water at the, a woman at the well again, for those of you going through the John study. It's interesting how these motifs display themselves again and again in Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. Notice the detail. This shows us this is written by someone who, who is paying attention to the geography, knows the situation, and he's writing to people. says, now you know what, this is right down the road here, right on the way to shore. You know where this is located. This isn't just some, some allegory, some general fictitious story. There, it, it has historical validity, and it takes place in specific locations. So the Lord appears to Hagar and says, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she explains that she's leaving leaving Sarai, running away, and the Lord tells her to return in verse 9 and submit to, her, to the authority of Sarai and says and promises her, gives her comfort in verse 10, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her further in verse 11, Behold, you are with child, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. The name of the child will be Ishmael. Now, what does Ishmael mean. Ishmael means God hears or God hears man. And it is an uh, uh, this is a common name in the ancient world. It's attested from tablets we found at Ebla and also manuscripts found at Mari. So this indicates that this fits the cultural context of the second millennium BC, early third millennium BC. And uh, Ishmael emphasizes the doctrinal point that God hears our problems. Even when we think God's not listening and we're running away and we're pushing the panic button and we think everything's collapsing around us, the name of Ishmael is going to be a continual reminder that God is not ignoring the situation, that He is listening. And this comes up in verse 16 and shows Abraham learns the spiritual lesson when he names the child Ishmael. Because this is a reminder that God's listening, even though all these years are going by between promise and fulfillment, that it, God is saying, wait and be patient. And so Sarai responds by calling the Lord El Roy, which means the God who sees, and naming the well Be'er Lahai Roy, which means the well of the God who sees. That is, God pays attention to man's problems and provides the solutions. So Abraham... When he, Abram now, when he's 86 years old, Ishmael is born to him. Then you go to verse seven, chapter 17. Look at verse 1. Now when Avram was 99 years old, so 13 years goes by, still no fulfillment. Uh, Avram, though, has learned his lesson. In this chapter, in chapter 17, uh, they get a pledge. God uh, 
pledges the promise anew, gives a new sign of circumcision, and gives them new names, indicating that God will eventually fulfill the promise. In chapter 18, he announces to them that the promise is, the fulfillment of the promise is imminent. Then in chapter 19, there is the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God is going to protect, protect the seed from the immoral attacks that would be there if Sodom and Gomorrah had continued. You always wanted to know, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Isaac, the child of promise, is getting ready to be born right down the street, and God is protecting the future life of this child from the perverted effects of Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 20, God protects the His promise from human irresponsibility. This is sort of like uh, scene uh, 1, act 2 again, a repetition of uh, Abr- Abram's trip down to Egypt. Now he goes to Abimelech and he tries to pass Sarah off as his wife, I mean as his sister instead of his wife. And Abimelech takes her into the harem. And then in chapter 21, um, and then and God protects them so that she is never taken by Abimelech. And it's clear that the birth of Isaac, clear to all that the birth of Isaac is from uh, is miraculous from Abram and Sarai. So in chapter 21, God provides the child in the first seven verses, and this brings joy. The child is named Yitzhak, which means laughter. And in verse 3 of Genesis 21, uh, the word or variation of Yitzhak is used three times to emphasize the joy and the rejoicing that takes place in association with the fulfillment of God's promise. But Ishmael's 13, and we all know how lovely 13-year-old boys can be and what a smart mouth they can have. And if you look down at verse 9, it says... Um, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Avram, to Abraham, mocking. Now this is the P.A.O. participle of the root from Atzak, the word for laughter. So he is having that sort of smart aleck laughter towards uh, Sarah, and he is, uh, it's a word that means to toy with or to trifle with someone in a deceptive way with an intent to harm them. And this becomes the antagonism in the household, and now finally Hagar and Ishmael are dismissed from the household as the the slave and the child of the slave. Now that sets up the analogy that Paul is going to use in Galatians chapter 4, that the child of the free woman stays in the house. Grace stays at home as a son. But the child of the slave, the the child always has the status of the mother. If the mother's free, the child's free. If the mother's a slave, the child's slave. Doesn't matter what the status of the father is. And so the issue is going to be to the Galatians, are you going to submit to the slavery of legalism or are you going to follow grace? And here's the example from the Old Testament. Grace or legalism? Ishmael or Isaac? You have to make a choice. Which way are you going to go? And we'll see that next week. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for this time to get into Your Word and see how clear these issues are presented, that there is no middle ground. It's either grace or legalism. And we thank You for the fact that You have done everything and we do nothing. You have provided everything both for salvation and the spiritual life. You have given us Your Word. You have provided for us everything we need for life and godliness. And teach us to rely exclusively upon you and your grace and your word, putting it into practice in our lives. We pray this now in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.